Okay, so this time I have uh, lecture notes for you. Someone suggested last time that as long as we were in PowerPoint lectures, it would be nice to have the lecture notes that you can take notes right on them. So there you go. Are there any questions from last time? Okay. Homework's due this Wednesday. And uh, my homework has for problem 2.2 is that you should do it in reverse order. It's, for whatever reason, it's easier to do that problem if you do the first part last. Uh, my office hour is today, Tuesday, 4 to 5. And your grader has an office hour uh, also on Tuesdays, uh, 1 to 2 p.m. And uh, just to, to advertise this, we are the first college students course listed in the iTunes directory. Give yourselves a hand. We're under education, higher education. There were some engineering and humanities courses that defeat us there. There you go. Tell your, tell your friends, listen to lectures. You can torture your parents who are paying for your tuition and say, you want to hear what my education's like? <laughs> Subscribe to the uh, podcast. <laughs> what was that? I said, you mean you can get that same education for free? Well, see, <laughs> that's, that's a good question, isn't it? See, it turns out you can't get course credit for free. You, you know, you don't have access to the lecture notes, unfortunately. You know, you don't have, have uh, no one's going to grade your homework if you're just listening out in cyberspace. But you will learn stuff if you're just listening out in cyberspace. So last time, we talked about the sharpness of the multiplicity function. The multiplicity function is what tells us the number of states available to the system which when we're talking about large statistical mechanics system is, is huge. And that function turns out to be very, very sharply peaked when we get to the physics of large numbers. And that's part of why statistical mechanics works. We introduced Sterling's approximation, which was a method for approximating factorials that are very, very large. So when we get a very large factorial now, we have methods for, for uh, studying them analytically. We looked at the fact that in the two-state system, in the binary system, which is where we're thinking of just flipping coins, or we're thinking of spin-up or spin-down, just a collection of those, and they are all distributed uh, with 50-50 chance. In that case, when we get a very large collection of them, the multiplicity function becomes a Gaussian distribution. That is, we can represent uh, the probability of any particular uh, configuration is approaching a Gaussian distribution. We talked about weighted averages, which means that you're going to weight each uh, particular possible outcome by the probability that that outcome happens. And we talked about the root mean squared fluctuations in any given quantity. So for large system sizes, uh, the root mean squared fluctuations go like the square root of the number of constituents. So if n is the number of particles in the system, square root of n will tell you something about the fluctuations. And in the two-state system, again, the multiplicity function approached this Gaussian right here, e to the minus 2s squared over n, where 2s had to do with the, the spin excess in the system. That is the number, you know, if I, if I say that, that this is some sort of magnetization, for example, that's what the spin excess is about, uh, the number of excess spins in one direction or the other. Oh yes, the star comes here. 
because this is an important concept that the fluctuations of the system go like square root of n. So where we were, um, have a little bit left over to finish up from last lecture. We didn't quite finish, so let me finish up from last time. Uh, we had just finished deriving uh, how to calculate expectation values over Gaussian integrals. So what that means is that we wanted to take weighted averages. So we wanted to study in our binary state model what's the probability of getting any particular configuration, but also we wanted to be able to calculate the RMS, the root mean squared fluctuation of the spin excess. So you might think that one measure of the system would be the average spin excess, but what's the average spin excess in the binary model? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's zero because on average you're going to get the same number heads up as heads down or spins up as spins down. Um, sorry, that was heads or tails. <laughs> heads up or heads down. Uh, so the better measure of the fluctuations in the system is to take some quantity that's going to be guaranteed to be non-zero. So a general measure of fluctuations is going to be take the quantity you're interested in, square it first, and then take the average. Okay, so that's the quantity that's, that will be non-zero, and then we can calculate that. So we were interested in the expectation of S squared. That would tell us something about the average fluctuations that happen in the spin excess as we take this huge collection of coins and flip them all at once, or as we have this collection of spins up and spins down that can all flip independently. So the way we take these weighted averages is we take uh, the quantity we're interested in, S squared in this case, Okay, and we're going to sum over S squared times the probability of that particular S squared. And for large numbers, we can convert the sum into an integral, which is what I've done here. So here I have integral S squared times G, the multiplicity function, all divided by 2 to the n. What, what this is supposed to represent is S squared times the probability, the sum over that. So the multiplicity divided by the total number of states available is the probability of any particular configuration. Because again, we're making that assumption that every configuration is equally probable. So since every configuration is equally probable, I simply take the number of ways that this particular spin excess can come up divided by the total number of outcomes possible. So that gave me g over 2 to the n is the probability of having any particular s. So now that we're set up here to take the expectation value of s squared, which just means the weighted average. So you know what's the average s squared in the system where I throw all these coins up in the air. So we take this integral here, and I've written out for you what the multiplicity was. We did a lot of work last time in order to derive that multiplicity for the binary model in the case of large numbers. And it's uh, 2 over pi n to the 1 half times 2 to the n times e to the minus 2s squared over n. So we plug that into the integral, okay? And you see that the 2 to the n and the 2 to the n cancel. Okay, so I'm left with this integral here. Now what I'm doing in the next line is I would like to do a change of variables where uh, I would like to manipulate this integral into something that looks like what we tried to calculate last time, which is integral x squared e to the minus x squared, because we know how to take that integral now. So I'm just going to take a change of variables here. The red arrows tell you where I'm putting in a factor. So since here, up in the x one, I have 2s squared over n, I'd like all the s's to look like that. Okay. So when I see an s squared here, I uh, 
also take an n divided by 2, okay, to try to put that in uh, to look similar. Actually, that's upside down. This should be 2 over n right here in your notes. So just flip that one over. Because what I'm trying to do is make this s squared look like what's up in the exponent. So I have a 2 s squared over n in the exponent, so this s squared should be a 2 over n. Here the s, to make it look similar, needs a square root of 2 over n next to it. See what I'm doing? I'm just throwing in factors that make it, make it scale. And then out in front, I need an n over 2 to the 3 halves to cancel out all those. Okay. This is just, uh, you know, you can either write out explicitly the change of variables you're doing, or if you're doing your homework and you're in a hurry, sometimes you'll just do this trick, right? Just put in the factors and then pull out, pull out the scaling in front. Did, did you follow that? Mostly? Okay. So now I have this integral here, okay, which now is exactly the integral I'm interested in. It is integrate x squared e to the minus x squared dx. Okay, this integral right here. So I know what that is. This integral here is square root of pi over 2. So now we just have to gather terms. Think of a square root of pi here, okay, divided by 2, just like it says up here. So the square root of pi will cancel that square root of pi. There's no square root of pi left. If we go now collecting factors of n, so I have an n to the three hertz, th sorry, an n to the three halves divided by square root of n gives me an n. There's the n. Gathering the factors of two will be a little bit more difficult. We have here one over two to the three halves and a two to the one half up in the numerator. Okay, so I'm going to have a net one over two, but I also had a one over two from here. Okay, so gathering all that together, I have n over 2 squared, or altogether n divided by 4. That gives me the average of s squared. Okay, so now you know how to calculate a cocktail party, right? If somebody says, hey, you know, I was thinking the other day, if I had uh, a million coins in a basket and I just accidentally spilled them on the floor, you know, I know that on average I'm going to get, you know, the you know, same number of heads of the tails up, but, uh, but, you know, there's probably going to be some excess. What's the average of the excess? You can calculate that now on a little cocktail napkin, okay? So that's, that's the answer. It's roughly, roughly going to go like n. Now, uh, what we'd like is the RMS, okay, spin excess. Actually, there's another step here. I've only calculated the uh, average of s squared. What I was interested in was the root mean squared. So I have here the mean, sorry, the square. <laughs> The mean of the square, I need to take the square root of that, right, to get the RMS. So the RMS value, meaning root mean squared, means take the square root of this guy. Okay. So the fractional fluctuations then, being the RMS value divided by the total spins in the system, will be proportional to this, the square root of this number, okay, which is square root of n, right, that's how the fluctuations go, divided by the total spins in the system, which is n, pretending have n spins in the system. So altogether, that's 1 over square root of n, or the fractional deviation or the fractional fluctuation. And this is general. That is, this result that in large systems, the deviation from the average tends to go like 1 over square root of n. That's, that is a general uh, result. So for example, ah, I have that subscript the wrong way. For n 
uh, approximately equal to 10 to the 22, that should be a superscript, not a subscript, for n, uh, for about 10 to the 22 particles in the system, one over square root of n goes roughly like 10 to the minus 11. Really pretty small, right, Compa you know, compared to the system size. So it is, this is telling you basically the percentage deviation, basically, from the average value. Very, very, very small when you get to very large system sizes, which tells us that um, it's another way of looking at how averages, okay, so we, we saw at first that the multiplicity function itself is very sharp, but now we're going to take weighted averages over that multiplicity function. Since the multiplicity function is very, very sharp, that means that averages are also very sharply defined. And uh, this, is, this is the key to, to statistical mechanics. Because the probability distributions are so sharp in large limits, the averages are very, very sharply defined. And so when I tell you that on average, uh, this, this table here has a certain amount of energy in it according to statistical mechanics or a certain heat capacity, and I calculate that based on these averages, the average will be the actual value because the system size is so large that the average is exactly what happens. Okay, we're exactly is quantified by that number. Okay, this is the deviation from exactly. It's 10 to the minus 11. It's a very small deviation. Questions? Um, I was just wondering what happened to the two. Oh, I threw the two out okay. because what's the factor of two among friends? Uh, when, they <laughs> when, when the numbers you're talking about are 10 to the minus 11, yeah. the two. Okay, I just wanted to make sure it was thrown out. It was, it was thrown out. Now, if I'd really been careful, I would have gone back to the definition of the spin excess, which takes into account 2s. So if I had really looked at the RMS of the true spin axis, which is 2s, again, 2s squared would be the 4, which is exactly the 4 you're wondering about. Yeah. Any other questions? Good questions. Okay, so what's, what's my point? Yes, thank you. Okay, fluctuations are small. The average is, is what happens, okay? And the most probable configuration ends up being key. Get the star. You're going to love the stars when it comes time to study for, for uh, exams. The slide gets the star. That was the binary model where we were assuming that everything is independent. So, so we had a model where uh, we were thinking of flipping coins where each coin flip has nothing to do with the other coin flip. Or, for example, a, mo a collection of independent spins where each spin is going to be either up or down independent of its neighbors. Do you think that that can describe the real world? Does that calculation have anything to do with what really happens anywhere? What are, what are your thoughts? How close is that to anything real? Okay. <laughs> it would be pretty logical because Gaussian distributions pop up all over the place as soon as we get a decent amount of sample size. Ah, okay. Do you know the, the name of that principle? Sure, or sometimes, uh, sometimes it's called central limit theorem. Yeah, yeah. Two of those. yeah. <laughs> it's more important to know the principle than, than, than the name of it, of course. But yes, when you get large distributions and large numbers, you very often go back to, to Gaussian probability tests, too. Now, I heard somebody point out that if you did drop a jar of pennies, this is actually correct, so yes, it does describe <laughs> actual pennies <laughs> dropping on the floor. Uh, well, uh, okay, that's, that's a great point. 
what did I, you know, what are some of the real world effects that you'd like to see put in? If I had a real collection of real spins and I really want to do real physics on them, what, what would you prefer to have seen in the model? Okay, we could add a magnetic field and that'll change the energy and bias it one way or the other. Anything else you want to see? There was like no like force interactions in there at all. I mean, you could see that in the model. Okay, so I let all the spins be independent, and and in in a real system, maybe it might be the case that one spin up affects another spin near it. Maybe I'm thinking of a material that has you know maybe to give a ferromagnet, for example, where there'll be a little mag little atomic magnetic moment, and it'll have a neighbor next to it that also has a magnetic moment, and probably those guys interact. So I left out all interactions in the binary model. Absolutely. Yeah. I also uh, didn't explicitly talk about temperature yet. So there are, there's of course more to the story, otherwise we could, we could stop the course now. But what, what's nice about the binary model is it's simple, it's easy, uh, but we still get some useful stuff out of it because uh, of, of um, what Anna said before, that the central limit theorem tells you that you often get galaxies anyway. Okay. Now, there are systems where the binary model is going to actually approach the actual physical reality. If, even if I have interactions between spins, and even if I have a magnetic field on the system that's going to bias it one way or the other, if I turn up the temperature far enough, none of those other energies will matter. The energy of interaction between spins won't matter. The Zeeman energy splitting between spin up or spin down in the magnetic field won't matter. So actually, if I take a spin system and go to high enough energy, the binary model will become correct. Any any uh, questions about this before we head on? Okay. So heading into new stuff, new stuff for today. Uh, we will go over again the fundamental assumption of statistical mechanics, and also talk more about probabilities. And I'll introduce this concept of ensembles. Ensembles are important in statistical mechanics. We'll discuss <laughs> what everyone discusses in thermodynamics and statistical mechanics courses, two systems in thermal contact and what that means and what you can calculate about it. We will define today entropy. And so we'll, we'll be able to write down an actual mathematical definition of what entropy means. I will show you a little bit about how to use partial derivatives because partial derivatives are going to be an important mathematical technology we have to use a lot in the course. We are also going to define temperature. After we define entropy, we will be able to define temperature. And then we will discuss the laws of thermodynamics. And what's, what's nice about statistical mechanics is that from statistical mechanics, you, you get for free the laws of thermodynamics, as opposed to in a, in a thermodynamics course, where you're only looking at macroscopic properties, you have to postulate the laws of thermodynamics. So here we're going to get them for free out of our fundamental assumptions. So part of the fun of this course is that there's really only one major assumption, which is that a closed system, that is a system that is a collection of particles that doesn't interact with the outside world, is equally likely to be in any accessible state. Just based on that, we're going to be able to derive most things, okay, just using math. So Einstein's for example, was also impressed with this. The theory is the more impressive, says Einstein, the greater the simplicity of its premises is, the more different kinds of things it relates, 
and the more extended is this area of applicability, therefore the deep impression which classical thermodynamics made upon me. There's a very small set of knowledge you start with, and then you can get a lot of things out of it. So the fundamental assumption, again, any closed system is equally likely to be in any accessible state. So closed system is basically clueless of the outside world. We draw a box around the system and see that there's no communication in or out of this box we've drawn around. A closed system has constant energy. We're not going to allow it to exchange energy with the outside world. It has a constant number of particles. We're not going to allow it to exchange particles with the outside world. And most of the time, we will assume it also has a constant volume. An accessible state is defined as anything that's compatible with the macro state, which generally means it's at the right energy, it's got the same number of particles, it's at the right volume, those sorts of things. So I have some fine print here, which means it's defined at the right energy within reasonable uncertainties and, and things like that. But uh, I don't want you to worry about how, you know, how, how small the uncertainties have to be. As we've already seen, the fluctuations in these systems are very small compared to the system as a whole. So you can think of it for now as being at the right energy. Any questions so far? Okay, probability. So we're assuming the system is equally likely to be in any accessible state. The multiplicity, G, has something to do with the number of accessible states in the system. This is also going to be a very large number. So think Avogadro's number 10 to the 23, something like that. And the probability of any one particular state, since they're equally likely, is uh, 1 over uh, the number of ways to get that state. So 1 over the multiplicity, fact, uh, multiplicity function. And here, okay, so S we've been using as the spin deviation. So when I say P of S, I mean the probability <coughs> of S, the probability of that particular spin excess. And for now, think more generally, though. Okay, so think concretely, go back to the spin excess concept. But really, uh, S is a general state label. So some general state uh, that has the property S associated with it, uh, its probability of happening has to do with 1 over the number of ways that you could have that system happen. We always have to normalize, though. Okay, so we always need something so that when I sum up all the probabilities, I'm going to get 1. So the sum of all probabilities has to be one. An ensemble is what, what we call a collection of all possible things the system can do. So I take the system, which is our collection of particles with the box drawn around it, and no energy or particles can get in and out of the box, and I make many copies of the system. I'm going to make one copy of the system for every accessible state, for every single microstate. Now, obviously, that's a lot of states. So really, we're just doing this in our heads, okay, or mathematically. And there will be a particular multiplicity, G, which will be the number of uh, accessible states. There are G states then in the whole ensemble. And to do the math, okay, to, to use math to figure out what's going to happen in these statistical mechanics systems, we will replace the system itself with the ensemble. Okay, so when we do math, we'll take this ensemble of possible states and do math on the ensemble itself. And we talked about weighted averages last time. Weighted averages are where I take 
the probability of something happening okay, times the quantity I'm interested in and sum up all those possible answers. Okay, so last time we played Powerball, for example, we had nine Powerballs and they could have a one, a two, or a three on them and for a certain collection of nine Powerballs we uh, calculated what the average answer would be every time I played Powerball. Okay, I pulled out one ball and saw that it was a one, two, or three. So we found out the, the way to calculate the averages was to take the number on the Powerball times the probability that that number would come up and sum all those possibilities. So here, uh, that's the same weighted average here, and in statistical mechanics we call that the ensemble average because the ensemble is going to do the proper weighting for us. And these, uh, these triangle looking brackets denote an average. X here is some property. Think magnetization, for example. Think average, think energy in the system or heat capacity, those sorts of things. And we'll, we will take averages over the ensemble of all the accessible states. So, as an example, very much like our Powerball example, if I take spins, so here my system, okay, the system is going to be six spins. It could be up or down, the same binary state model. And here on the left, I've listed magnetization of the system, and on the right, I've drawn out the microstate. So one microstate, for example, is all six spins are up, in which case the magnetization is six. Here, four spins are up, two are down, so the net magnetization is two. Here, again, four up, two down. Here, uh, five up and one down, so the net magnetization in that case was four. If that's all I include in my ensemble, it's just those four possibilities. Then the average over this ensemble, I just sum up over all the magnetizations divided by, uh, well, times the probability that each happened. So if this is all that's possible, just those four states, and they're each equally likely, then that means that each one has a 25% chance of coming up because I have four different states. So I multiply each magnetization times its probability, six times 25% plus two times 25%, plus the 25% chance of getting two another way, okay, which is this, plus the 25% chance of getting four, add all that up and I get 3.5. You have a question? Yeah. Um, so an ensemble doesn't have to include all possible states? It should. It the, should. Real, the real ensemble needs to include all the states, absolutely. Good point. So I could write out, uh, I guess in this case it would be 64 microstates. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The real ensemble needs to include every possibility. So to do real statistical mechanics on a set of six spins, I'd have to write out 64 possible microstates. But then the, the concept is the same. Then I would have a 1 over 64 chance of getting any particular microstates. Question? If you wrote out all the microstates, would you get zero? I would. And then the better thing to calculate would be the RMS. Right, the root mean square. Good. Other questions, comments? So, the system, we keep capitalizing that. That's just what comes up in system again. Just talk about the system, which is defined as your box of particles where the set of particles doesn't interact with the rest of the world. So, once I do that and draw the, the imaginary box around everything, the system has a particular energy inside of it, and that's going to be the energy inside. It has a particular 
number of particles inside of it, and that's going to be the number of particles. So uh, your book uses the symbol U for energy and N for number of particles, so we'll do that as a particular U or a particular N. And a certain number of particles think, again, a large number, like 10 to the 23. And there will also be a multiplicity of microstates available. So for a given energy inside and a given number of particles inside, there will be a multiplicity G, which depends on the energy that's in there and the number of particles. So if there's only one particle in there, for example, the multiplicity is probably pretty small. If there's 10 to the 23 particles in there, the multiplicity is huge. So that's why this is a function of the number of particles. It's also a function of the energy. If the energy is really small, there's not that much the system can do different. But if the energy is large, there's a lot of ways that the system can do that, so the multiplicity will go up again. And this multiplicity is the same thing as the number of microstates, microstates available or the number of configurations. Any questions so far? I'm mostly just defining terms. Energy, microstates. Microstate is the same thing as configuration. Now we get to two systems in thermal contact. So here, up at the top, I have two systems not in thermal contact. Okay, that is, they have system one has energy one, N one. Uh, system two has U two, N two, representing its own energy and number of particles. And now I want to bring them together. Okay, and put some barrier in between that means that the number of particles can't change on either side, but I would like them to be in thermal contact. Okay, so I actually need them to be able to exchange energy somehow. So this, this barrier will not let particles through, but it will let, let uh, energy pass through the barrier. So now I want to see what happens. I'll let these two systems exchange energy, but not exchange particles, and that's what we mean by thermal contact. So, now they adjust. What do you expect to happen intuitively? Let's say that the left-hand side has a lot more energy than the right-hand side. Okay, so if I have a lot more energy on the left-hand side, we expect maybe some of that energy will flow to the right-hand side. Okay, so I do, I do expect some sort of, of adjustment uh, how do you think you should talk about now, okay, so I have a multiplicity on the left-hand side, and I have a multiplicity on the right-hand side, okay, so it's, you know, there's several ways the left-hand side can have its particular energy, and several ways uh, the left-hand side can have its particular energy. What's, um, let's, let's, let's be concrete here. Let's say that there are uh, ten ways on the left-hand side, okay, ten, ten possible microstates, and two possible microstates on the right-hand side. What's the total number of microstates of the system together? Twelve. Ooh, we have a fight in the class. Twelve or twenty. How do you get to twenty? Yeah, you multiply. Okay, so you say that uh, the system that has two possible things, well, okay, so for its one state, there are ten ways the other guy can be, plus for its second state, ten ways the other guy can be. So you just multiply the two uh, multiplicities. Now, what's going to end up happening, okay, we have the fundamental assumption to remember that uh, every possibly acceptable system is equally likely. 
So, so really, the system is going to end up exchanging energy, okay? And there's going to be now a whole lot more microstates available. Because what will happen is that now since there are many more microstates available, uh, I have to take into account the fact that U1 and U2 have a lot more possibilities, so there's a lot more Gs available, okay? A lot more uh, multiplicity. And what we need to find now is for the combined system, what's the combined system's most probable configuration? That's what we're really after. How do I divide up the energy on both sides so that the system itself is in its most probable configuration? Because the most probable configuration is essentially <laughs> what actually happens. And that will be the one for which I take the multiplicity on the left-hand side times the multiplicity on the right-hand side, and that's the largest. So basically, I'll divide up the energy so that I have the most accessible states available. Are there any questions about that? Yes? You haven't talked about energy flowing yet. You just talked about the most probable states. I mean, how, how are they going to exchange energy without any exchange of bodies? Well, that's a good question. Um, we don't have to, to say exactly microscopically how it's doing that. But I do know, for example, that I, you know, I, I just know from my daily experience that, that, that I can exchange energy with things, I can see other things exchange energy without exchanging particles. So, for example, if I took the thermostat in this room and I turned it way, way, way down, that would make the room cold. And I know that we would all exchange energy without exchanging particles with the, uh, the air in the room because we would all feel cold. <laughs> so, so in, that, in that case, uh, what is the mechanism? What's the microscopic mechanism of, of energy exchange in that case? I mean, I would be able to tell, right, if I, if I did this and turned the air conditioning way up in here and it got really cold, you'd all start shivering and stop. So I would know you were exchanging energy, but probably you're not exchanging particles because you wouldn't, you know, eventually evaporate away from the this. So what, what, what do you think is the, this is a good, it's a really good question. So, I mean, what do you think is the microscopic thing that's going on there that allows you to exchange energy but not particles? Collision. Okay, you hear collisions. Collisions of, of what? Does that mean I need to bump into the wall in order to exchange energy? <laughs> the particles on the skin. Okay. I mean, you could go down in small electrons or then okay. you go down in cells or so they hit the electrons in the air, whatever, there's going to be a, an exchange of okay. energy for the heat. Okay. Okay. All right. So you're thinking about uh, the, the uh, atoms and molecules in the air and they're moving around because they have a particular energy. And so they, for example, think of a molecule in the air and it whacks into the table and bounces off and as it did that it changed its momentum which means it imparted some momentum also imparted some energy then to the table and back and forth so it's little little microscopic collisions of things beating against each other so then to get back to your question of how's it happening here then I have to assume that there's some way <laughs> for this barrier then to uh, to be able to conduct energy like that so the atoms on the right-hand side will beat against the barrier according to their energy, and the atoms on the left-hand side will beat against the barrier according to their energy, and they'll be able to transfer the energy through the barrier that way. Yeah. It's a really good question. Any other questions so far?
Okay, so, so you see the, the point here is that for every way that I break up the system, I can break up the system so that there's a small amount of energy on the left and a large amount on the right, and so on. Now, intuitively, we kind of think that that's probably not going to happen, that maybe things will equilibrate a little bit more. We're going to calculate in a few, in a few slides exactly what it is, okay, that equilibrates. But for a particular energy on the left-hand side, there are a particular number of microstates available on the left-hand side. Same on the right-hand side. But the total number of microstates is the left times the right. So since I'm multiplying those together, that's the quantity that I would like to, ma to uh, maximize, is that, that number multiplied together. So let's be a little bit more concrete now and actually do the calculation. For two spin systems in thermal contact, the energy I'd like to take into account is, like, like Max said, we should apply a magnetic field and see what their, their energies are in that case. So for example, I could apply a magnetic field and consider that the energy will be uh, minus two times the magnetization times the field applied uh, times the, the spin excess. Sorry, M is the magnetic moment. So uh, this has units of, say, the four magneton or something like that. And S is the number of spins that are, that are up. It's just your usual Zeeman flooding where if I have a, a magnetic field in a particular direction, the magnetic moment tends to want to align with the field. So the total energy of the two systems combined will always be energy on the left-hand side plus the energy on the right-hand side. So I can write that down. Total energy here is U1 plus U2. And I will say that there's a particular spin excess S1 on the left and another spin excess S2 on the right. So the way that I can then add these two energies is simply by taking this Zeeman formula. So now the total energy is minus 2 uh, times uh, the magnetic moment times the field times S1 plus S2 or minus 2MB times S where S is S1 plus S2 the total, total spin excess. So what, I, uh, what I'd like to do is have these two systems exchange energy only with each other, not with the outside world. So I'm going to let them exchange energy holding U, the total U, constant. So now we're ready to do some math. Here's Here's the total multiplicity of the system. It's for every way I break things up, okay, where there's S1 on the left and S2 on the right, notice here I've written S2 as S minus S1 because I can do that. Okay, so it'll make my life easier if I have only one variable <coughs> to deal with. So here, uh, I'll take multiplicity on the left times multiplicity on the right and sum over all the ways I can break those up. Okay, so here by summing over S1, I'm actually summing over the possible energy states. Any questions so far? Okay, all I'm calculating is the total multiplicity. So the most probable configuration will be the largest term in the sum, and you get to calculate some of that in your homework. You'll calculate an entire sum and, and see how to compare that to the most probable configuration. The most probable configuration, it turns out, is so probable that it dominates the sum. That is, there's one term in that sum that's so huge it swamps out the others, and it, it, it is the thing that happens. It is so probable that that's the one that happens that the sum may as well be approximated by the largest term. Okay. So it's like taking a million and adding one or something. Who's going to care about the one? So we'll use uh, this notation here. We have uh, S1 on the left, S2 on the right, 
and little carrots on top will denote the most probable spin state. So S1 hat, S2 hat are the most probable ones. And uh, even in that case, the total spin excess is still S1 hat plus S2 hat. It's also equal to S1 plus S2 for any particular configuration. So the largest term in the sum, I've just defined it notationally, I haven't found it or anything. The largest term in the sum I can denote by G1 of N1 comma S1 hat and at times G2 of N2 comma S minus S1 hat, right? Where this S minus S1 hat is really S2 hat. Any questions so far? Question here. So would that be the 20 that we were talking about? Yes, it would. Okay. Yes. Although what will, you know, if we really put in real numbers for a system of 10 to the 23 particles, it's going to be huge. You need to calculate it on your, on your homework. Question. So, is the 20 the only term in the sum? It's not the only term. It's just such a large term compared to the other terms. Where do the other terms come from? Okay, so what we will mean by the most probable configuration is that, for example, the spin excess on the left is 3 and the spin excess on the left is minus 2. Mm -hmm. But there were a lot of other things that could have happened. It's just that they're very, very, very unlikely compared right. to the most probable no, configuration. So they're all there. I'm just trying to figure out where the other terms in the sum would have come from. If you multiply the g on the left and the g on the right, you only get one number. That's right. So where is the other term? Oh. Really, I should start with this. Really, I should start with the total multiplicity, where I sum over the different ways to break up S1. So if I really want to count all the possible things that can happen, Okay, I would take a particular S1, multiply the two multiplicity. Now I change S1, and now I have now I have to multiply the new pr uh, multiplicities and add those in. Oh, now oh. I change S1. Okay. Okay. Question here. Weren't the ten and two ten states and two states before yep. they exchanged energy? So those aren't the most probable, right? They would equalize. That's right. Five and five. That's right. I just I just pulled those out of hat. But the twenty you said that that was. That was the uh, that was one of these terms in here. So right, one the of the wouldn't be the largest term, right? Oh yeah, there's well, not unless I really really cooked up the system. So one of these configurations, you know, will have uh, well, okay. So in the example I said where you had you know two possibilities and ten possibilities, that's one of the terms in the sum. Twenty is pretty small. We're going to get other terms in the sum that are like ten to the twenty-two and ten to the twenty-four. Those would be the ones we care about. But won't the largest terms be where the two numbers are about equal five and five after you exchange energy? Probably, depending on the interactions you have in the system. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. If I didn't put any bias on it, if I didn't put any magnetic field, for example, and I just let it thermally equilibrate, you're right. Yeah. Other questions? approximate the entire sum 
by the one term that's so huge it swamps the others. There's one term in there that's 10 to the 22 times larger than everything else. Actually, on your homework, you'll calculate how much larger. Okay. So there's one term in there that's the most important. So we will now approximate the total multiplicity by that one single most, po most probable outcome. So it's a bit weird to multiply two things to get the total. So when I talk about energy, for example, if I wanted to talk about the total energy in the system, I would take uh, energy on the left-hand side plus energy on the right-hand side, and then add them. And if I want the total number of particles, I add them. If I want the total volume, I add them. This multiplicity thing is a bit odd in that you have to multiply. That's just the way, uh, that's the way degeneracies go, that's the way multiplicities go. So what we'd like to do to make the multiplicity fit in to the rest of our thinking of, I'd like to, when I put two systems together, be able to add their properties to get the total. I'd like to define something new so that I won't have to multiply multiplicities. I'd rather add things. Okay, so, so what, can I, what can I do to that to make it addable? It's in the note. I know it's in the notes. I'm going to take the logarithm. You know that because it's in the notes. So if I take the logarithm, I now have something that I can add. Because log of g1 times g2 is the same as log of g1 plus log of g2. So take this multiplicity function, take the logarithm of it, and that's a new term, and now I can add those things directly. So when I have multiplicity <laughs> on the right-hand side and multiplicity <coughs> on the left-hand side, I take the logarithm of both of those, now I can add them to get the total logarithm with the multiplicity. And the nice thing about that is that this is actually a definition of the entropy of the system. This ends up being uh, exactly what we mean by, by entropy. So the entropy is the logarithm of the number of possible states. So things that have more entropy have more microstates accessible. Things that have less entropy have less microstates accessible. And now we can now we have a quantity that we can just add. So I can take the total entropy of the system by adding entropy one plus entropy two. Any questions about that? Okay, we just we, we made a definition though. Okay, so sigma is defined as sigma being the entropy is defined as the logarithm of the multiplicity. Thermal equilibrium then will be the following. When two systems come into thermal contact, they'll exchange energy, they'll adjust their multiplicity, and the most likely state to find them in is the most probable configuration, which has the largest G1 times G2, okay, because that's the term that's going to dominate the system, which means that the total entropy is maximized, okay, because the system is going to find itself in, um, in whatever breakdown of, of the energy on the right hand and the left hand side will give it the most accessible state. That's what it's after, right? It's after the most accessible state. Okay. And it's not like we have to postulate some force that does this. All we did was postulate that each state is equally likely. Okay. What we've done now is we've concentrated on the thing that's most likely. And the most probable configuration, by definition, means that the total entropy is maximized. Do you see how that happens? Since the entropy is the logarithm of multiplicity, the system's just going to eventually find itself in the state that maximizes entropy. So now we can do some calculations. Okay, 
Now we can talk about the uh, entropy uh, on side one and entropy on side two. We can look at the total entropy by just adding them together. That was the point of defining the entropy. Sigma one plus sigma two is total entropy. And sigma one is a function of u one, that is the energy on side one and the number of particles on side one. And entropy two is a function of u two and n two. My laser pointer is giving out on me. Okay, can you see that? No. There. Okay. Now u two is, is either a rock band, or I can define it as the total energy minus the energy on the left-hand side. So I'm going to replace U2 by U minus U1. And N2 I'm going to leave right there. Now, I'd like to take a derivative, okay, because when I find the maximum entropy, that, that's where the derivative of the entropy will be uh, zero. So if I think of the total entropy as a function of u1, which is how I just wrote it, just wrote it as a function of u1, that means that the derivative of the total entropy with respect to u1 is zero whenever I get to this most probable configuration. So now I just need to take these derivatives. So I need to take now uh, the derivative of sigma1 with respect to u1, the derivative of sigma2 with respect to u1, okay? You see how I want to take it with respect to one variable. And okay, so just copy down the sigma one by the u one. The sigma two by the u two, I can also approximate as the sigma. Sorry, not approximate, but rewrite uh, using the chain rule. That's going to be the sigma two by the u two times the u two by the u one. The u two by the u one is just minus one because as I move, you know, as I increase the energy on the left hand side, I must have gotten it from the right hand side. Okay, so that derivative is simply minus one because I exchange the energy one for one like that. So now in this most likely configuration, the entropy is, is maximized, meaning that its derivative has gone to zero, right? When a function reaches a maximum or a minimum, its derivative goes to zero. So the derivative of the total entropy with respect to the energy on one side went to zero which means that separately, right, so we calculated here, on separate sides, on the left-hand side, for example, d sigma 1 by du1, okay, equals d sigma 2 by du2. Okay, so if I take those both separately on each side, they're equal. So this is the quantity. This will adjust and change until it equals this quantity over here. So we've just found a mathematical quantity that's going to be equal on both sides in thermal equilibrium. This is good, okay? We know how to define something now. It's going to tell us when we're in thermal equilibrium. And this is what's going to define the temperature, okay? So this quantity must be directly related to the temperature. This quantity must be directly related to the temperature. The derivative of the entropy with respect to uh, the energy. So temperature is, is really defined in this way. When two systems are in thermal contact, they exchange ener energy until d sigma by du on the left-hand side equals d sigma by du on the right-hand side. That's when you have the most probable configuration. And we know that in thermal equilibrium, temperature on the left-hand side has equal temperature on the right-hand side. And these two statements are equivalent. So this is going to end up being the definition of temperature in our statistical mechanics system.
Any questions so far? Okay, we just found the thing that is going to define the temperature. So on that note, let's take a break. Uh, Ten minutes. Are there any questions after the break now? Any burning questions? Okay, so we left off by having defined something that must be related to the temperature because it's the thing that becomes equal when I put two systems in thermal contact. So these, uh, the derivative of the entropy with respect to the energy on the left-hand side will equal the derivative of the entropy with respect to the energy on the right-hand side. E sigma by, by du will equal on both sides. So T1 is some function of that quantity, and it, it, it turns out that they are directly related. So uh, here, for example, uh, 1 over T1, being the temperature on the, on the on side one is the Boltzmann constant, Kb, times d sigma by du. So 1 over temperature is the derivative of the entropy with respect to the energy times the Boltzmann factor. And the Boltzmann factor is just there to get the units correct. Okay. What, what units did entropy have? Hmm. Who said number? Ky. Yeah, it's a log and a log is unitless. So the entropy, um, as we've defined it here with a sigma, has, has no units associated with it. Uh, this, the energy, of course, we usually define in, in joules. So then to get a temperature, which is in Kelvin, I need some proportionality constant, which has to be the Boltzmann factor, which tells me how many joules there are per Kelvin. So the definition of temperature for us, one over temperature is Boltzmann constant times d sigma by du. Now, this entropy, as we've defined it as a logarithm, is a unitless measure of the, of the entropy. Uh, in a thermodynamics course, you would multiply the unitless entropy times Kb, okay, to get something that's in uh, more, more normal units, you would take the actual Kb times sigma. Now, okay, I would like to now remind you of some things about how partial derivatives work. Because you notice, when I wrote these, right, I use partial derivatives because I wanted a derivative of the entropy with respect to just the energy changing, holding everything else constant, which means I was taking a partial derivative because entropy is really a function of the energy, the number of particles, the volume, but if I hold volume and particles constant, then I'm really thinking of a partial derivative. So what a partial derivative is, okay, so you know, for example, if I have a function f equals a times x, uh, df by dx is a, it's a constant that's, that's left over. But I could also have taken the derivative with respect to a. I just turn it around now, df by dA is what's left over, that's the x. So both of these are partial derivatives if I consider f to be a function of both a and x. So really this is a partial derivative holding a constant. This is a partial derivative df by dA holding x constant. So that's what we mean by a, a partial derivative. So we're going to have a lot of variables running around in this class, and we need to be very explicit about what we're keeping constant. So we will often keep volume constant, we will often keep number <coughs> constant, but not always. That's not always your experimental situation. So the notation we'll use is when we say df by dx, okay, we'll put a parenthesis around it and a subscript a 
meaning whatever's here in the subscript is what's being held constant as I take this partial derivative. So the f by dx holding a constant is a, okay? The f by dA holding x constant is x. Okay, so that's, that's what we mean by partial derivatives. Any questions about that? So, to be a little bit more explicit here about our definitions of temperature, we talked about taking two systems, putting them in thermal contact. There were a lot of variables. There's energy, number of particles, and the entropy on each side was a function of the energy on that side and the number of particles on that side. And 1 over temperature is Kb times d sigma by du, but we really mean holding everything else constant. So here I put n and 1 as a subscript because I really meant don't let any particles trace. Also, someone else asked about volume. If I were really, really being explicit, I would put a comma v as well. Okay? Volume is also being held constant in these, uh, in these uh, equations. So we really mean keeping the number of particles constant. So this is your overall definition of, of temperature. Okay? And you can also add a comma v here if you want, if you were bothered by, by the volume as well. So keeping everything else constant, uh, 1 over temperature is kb times e sigma by du at constant and in constant volume. Yes, they get the star. In fact, this is such a fundamental equation that it wouldn't hurt you to memorize it. It wouldn't hurt you. It wouldn't be wasted mental energy. And we will use, because it will be easier, see this kb running around is a bit cumbersome. So we're usually going to use uh, temperature and units of energy, because temperature is a measure of energy. I just use the Boltzmann constant to convert from kelvins to joules and joules to kelvins. Okay? So what I'd like to do is uh, normalize the temperature so that I can think about the temperatures also being in joules. It's, it's just another measure of energy, so I'm going to put it in the same units as the other energy. So we'll use the symbol tau for that. Okay, if I divide both sides here by Kb, then this will be uh, 1, over t, 1 over temperature T times Kb will be 1 over tau. So 1 over tau will directly be d sigma by du, or if I invert it, okay, just flip both sides of this, tau as the temperature is du by d sigma. And you'll notice I just inverted the partial derivative. That's a property of partial derivatives. You can do that. If I have a partial derivative d sigma by du with respect to n, sorry, with respect to n constant, it's equal to 1 over du by d sigma holding n constant. That's a really useful property, too. People like to, uh, in, in graduate statistical mechanics courses, they like to torture you with lots of really long problems where you have to remember that in order to get your homework done. So we saw that for uh, two spin systems in thermal contact, there was a most probable configuration. It dominated the multiplicity sum. The, mul the total multiplicity was the sum over G1 times G2, where the sum is taken over all the possible breakdowns of the different spins. And there's one term in there that dominates. Okay? So you've already seen this slide, but I'm just reminding you that the largest term in the sum is the thing that dominates. And we can look now at the sharpness of the multiplicity in this case. Okay? So for our specific case of uh, spins on each side, the, <coughs> the term that's, you know, that's 
let's think here about a particular term in the sum, G1 times G2, where G1 is a function of N1 and S1, G2 is a function of N2 and S2, that equals uh, G1 at 0 spin excess times G2 at 0 spin excess times uh, the Gaussian function, which tells us about the deviation, e to the minus 2S1 squared over N1 plus 2S squared over N2. Now, what I'd like to do is rewrite that in terms of, uh, all in terms of S1. So, this S squared, sorry, this S2 squared I'll write as S minus S1, where S is the total spin deviation, S1 plus S2. That way I have one spin variable running around. And if I want to think about the term that's the maximum in here, okay, if I think now about this G1 times G2, in the inside the larger sum as being a function of S1. You see how I can do that? As I go through the possible spin deviation, okay, each time I turn up the spin deviation, there's a different G1 times G2 that's in the sum that I'm taking. <laughs> different G1 times G2 that's in the sum that I'm taking. So I can consider then G1 times G2 to be a function of S1. And the maximum G1 times G2 will be found when the derivative is zero. So I can find the largest term using this method. <coughs> so I'd like to take d by ds1 of g1 times g2. So here, uh, how do we get this far? Let's see. We need to take, yeah, okay. So I've, sorry, I've kind of skipped this step here. But what I want to think about is taking d by ds1 of this uh, g1 times g2 this part doesn't matter, it's a constant, right? So I needed the derivative of the exponential, okay? And the derivative <coughs> of e to the something is the derivative of the something times the e to the something. So what I really need to worry about is this derivative of the something, because if that's zero, then the whole thing is zero. So d by ds1 of what's in here, okay? 2s1 squared for n1 plus 2 times s minus s1 squared divided by n2. When that's zero, I found the most probable configuration. So you can take these derivatives. Uh, derivative here, that's going to bring a 2 down. So I'll get a 4s1 over n1. Derivative here, uh, that will be a little bit trickier here. I need the s1, so I'll get a, a 2 coming down. So a 4 times an s minus s1, but I need the derivative again. Right, so that's using chain rules, so then a minus 1. So the minus 1 here, if I pull it to the other side, okay, I'll get this back four times uh, S minus S2 over N2. I think this is a typo and it's supposed to be S1. Two. Yeah, that's a typo. So if I take the derivative up there, right, I'll get a four S1 over N1 plus two times times two, Okay, so it'll be 4 times s minus s1 over n2 times the minus 1 equals 0. Okay. <coughs> so then I can pull that to the other side. So doing that. Okay. So that's the typo. That's one there. That's an s1 right there. So for these to be a maximum, uh, I need. Uh, I need not only this, right, I need the first derivative to be zero, but first derivative is zero to maximum or to minimum. To really test this, right, 
I need to uh, look at the second derivative. So for this to be maximized, I need a second derivative to be less than zero, while its first derivative is zero. So that's the same thing here. Let's see. Right. Okay, so here again, I probably skipped too many steps. But think in your head of taking g squared by ds1 squared of this whole quantity here, right? So the first derivative would have brought down a minus times these things. Okay. So when I take the second derivative, I sell that minus sign, which is why the second derivative with respect to s1 squared of this quantity needs to be greater than zero. Okay. Because there was a minus sign up there in the exponential. That's all. So for this to be true, okay, now I need to take uh, another derivative of, we go back to this quantity, minus this, okay. So take another derivative of this quantity, and I'll get a 4 over n1 right here. And then I'll also get a 4 over n2, right? I take derivative here with respect to s1. Okay, that'll go to 0 minus minus to the positive 4 over n2. And this is greater than 0, so that's good. Okay, that means that we found something that's actually a maximum rather than a minimum. Here's a question. It is. What I, what I did is that S1 is actually not independent of S2 because I, I have said that there is some total spin excess that's there. So total spin excess is S1 plus S2. So if I regard S being the total spin excess as a constant, then, yeah, then they're not independent variables. That's, that's, a, that's a good point. I wasn't clear enough about that. The, the reason I've done that is because we were thinking of the spin in a magnetic field. And so there's a t total energy in the system associated with a total Zeeman energy. So as I flip a spin on the left, I'll have to unflip a spin on the right. Otherwise, the system will be gaining energy or losing energy. Yeah. That was, that was important. I should have been more, more uh, explicit about that. Any other questions? Okay. All right, so what we've done is we've found uh, a condition, okay? Uh, this right here is a condition now on the sharpest term, sorry, the most important term in the sum. So the maximum configuration occurs when this is true, okay? Uh, which means, again, okay, look, I've carried through my mistake. This is S minus S1, not S minus S2. So turn that 2 there into a 1 in your notes. So the, ma the most probable configuration happens now when S1 over N1 is S minus S1 over N2, but S minus S1 is S2. So it's as you all expected, okay, when the two spins are equal on both sides, the two spin excesses. When S S1 over N1 equals S2 over N2. So not uh, equal directly, rather it's some sort of unitless measure, right? It's, it's uh, the fraction, basically, the fractional spin deviation on the left-hand side will equal the fractional spin deviation on the right-hand side. Okay, that's what S1 over N1 means and S2 over N2 means. Or, since that was the most probable configuration, okay, now I can put the carrots on. S1 hat over N1 equals S2 hat over N2. Okay, so we've just shown that. We've shown that, that you think uh, someone had had stated that as an intuitive expectation that somehow the, 
the uh, magnetizations on both sides will, will be the same. They are as long as you normalize into the number of total spins on each side. Okay. So, wow, that's a lot of algebra there. But S1 hat over N1 is S2 hat over N2. Uh, it turns out that that is equal to the total spin excess divided by the total number of particles. Okay. That's, this is basically a statement that that some fractional magnetization on the left is equal to the fractional magnetization on the right. That is the total fractional magnetization. Okay, it has to be there. You can go through this algebra to prove that to yourself. So basically the fractional spin excess on both sides will be the same thermodynamically. So to finish our discussion here of the sharpness of the multiplicity function, the most probable configuration happens when G1, G2 are the maximum, and that's such a large term that we don't even worry about the other terms in the sum. And this happens when S1 equals S1 hat. So I can write this as G1 of S1 hat times G2 of S minus S1 hat. And that is G1 of 0 times G2 of 0, where 0 means no spin excess, times that Gaussian part of the multiplicity function, e to the minus 2s1 hat squared over n1 plus 2s2 hat over n2, okay, which will also end up being uh, s squared here. So now if I define the deviations from the most probable values, the most probable value of s1 is s1 hat, most probable value of s2 is s2 hat, okay, there's a chance the system might not quite be there. It could be fluctuating just a little bit off. But as I keep, as I keep claiming, okay, the fluctuations will be small. So now let's show that the fluctuations are small. So I can rewrite the actual S1 as being equal to its, its most probable value plus a little bit off. Okay, a little bit off is going to be delta. Now, however much this one is off, S2 is off by the opposite amount. So I can rewrite S2 as S2 hat minus the same deviation, right? Because we're thinking of spins in a magnetic field and as one spin flips, a spin on the other side has to flip because that's how the system trades energy. Okay, something spin like that. So in that case then, uh, now if I take S1, what I really need to think about is S1 squared. So S1 squared, is S1 hat squared plus delta squared plus the cross term 2 delta S1 hat. Now, okay, G1 times G2, both considered as functions of S1 and S2, are G1, D2 max, okay, where that's going to be up here, right, defined in terms of S, uh, e to the minus 2S1 hat squared and 2S2 hat squared, okay, so that's all in here. What else I need uh, over here is the stuff that's, that's left over, okay? So that may have skipped too many steps too, but I hope, I hope this is clear what just happened here. So just G1 times G2, okay? Now I'm going to get an E to the minus 2S1 squared and an E to the minus 2S2 squared over N2. And if I put in all of this information about S1 being related to S1 hat plus delta, and multiply all those terms out, I'll get an e to the minus S1 hat squared over N1. That's going to be here in G max. 
and I'll also get an e to the minus s2 hat squared over n2 that's also here in g2 max. And then here's what's left over. This is the deviating part. Okay. So I have the 4 s1 delta over n1. Uh, I have a 2 delta squared over n1. 4 s2 times hat times delta. Uh, and a 2 delta squared over n2. Okay. So this, is, this is the part that's representing the deviation. Okay. Why don't I just do that? I'd like to cross those terms off. I, I hear whispering, but I couldn't hear what you said. Okay, so yes, the the S1 hat over N1 is equal to S2 hat over N2. That's, that's what we just, just showed a couple of slides ago, that in the most probable configuration, okay, the, the two excesses are are the same then the result ends up being, okay, that the deviation, okay, the, sorry, any term in the multiplicity function, g1 times g2, will be equal to g1, g2 max, okay, g1, g2 max is the term that denominated the sum, okay. The other terms in the sum can be written in terms of, this will help you do your homework, g1, g2 max times an exponential, e to the minus 2 delta squared over n1, times e to the minus 2 delta squared over n2, where delta is the deviation from the most probable configuration. So I hope what's clear already is that the other terms, that, so I just wrote all the other terms in the sum, times g max times an exponential. Exponentials are very sharp functions, right? <coughs> so if the deviation delta gets too large, these other terms in the sum are very, very small. They're exponentially small, okay, compared to the maximum term. So, for example, just to look at, at the numbers a little bit, if n1 is equal to n2 is equal to 10 to the 22, let me say that I'm going <coughs> to assume a spin excess on one side of 10 to the 12. That's pretty small. Okay, for 10 to the 22 spins, I'm going to let there be a magnetization of 10 to the 12. Extra spins up. Then, inside this exponential, right, to calculate how, how far down that term is, Okay, how much is that compared to the most probable configuration? I need to calculate 2 delta squared over n1, which is 200 in this case. Okay, and now g1 times g2 <laughs> goes like goes like the maximum times e to the minus 400. Okay, e to the minus 400 is about equal to 10 to the minus 174. That's pretty small, 10 to the minus 174. There are some calculators that if you plugged in 10 to the minus 174, it would give you zero. And that's pretty good. Okay, 10 to the minus 174 is a really, <laughs> really, really, really small number. So even the small fractional deviation, right, where the, the spin excess was only 10 to the 12, okay, then uh, the term that includes that is, is exceedingly small compared to the maximum value. So this is part of me trying to convince you that this total multiplicity function really does have one term that really is dominating the sum. All these, these other deviations that you consider are very, very unlikely compared to the most probable configuration. Are there any questions so far? 
well, the free trial, the delta equal to the temperature, the air we have that exponential e to the power minus 4. Okay, so what, um, right, so you're talking about maybe, maybe I didn't, uh, maybe I took too much deviation. What about a much smaller yeah, deviation? Maybe make, make it just 10 or something like that. What if it's just 10? 10 out of 10 to the 22 spins? So then I'd, I'd have to repeat the calculation and say, well, okay, so it'd be uh, 10, let's say, well, okay, I'd have to rerun all the numbers. Uh, but it's still going to be down by an exponential. Let's see, 2 times, so 200 divided by 10 to the 22, so 10, 10 to the minus uh, 20. Um, yeah, it's still going to end up being smaller than the most probable configuration. But the, the right way to count these things is to, to look at since we've gone to the uh, we've gone to a continuum limit, okay, we call it a continuum limit when we start taking <coughs> integrals rather than sums. Then the right way to count these things technically is to look at slices in space. Okay, so then I, okay, since I've gone to a scheme where I'm taking integrals instead of sums, I have to say then over this particular interval, there's so many states in that interval, and in the next interval, there's so many states in that interval. So I have to go to a kind of an interval counting of it to, to really be proper. If you want to be talking where you're pretty close to the maximum, but you want to go very, very, very small bit away, then you have to start weighting your intervals a little bit more carefully. Okay, but that's, that's how you would do it, to weight it a little bit. Any other questions? Okay. Okay, now we're ready to talk about some of the laws of thermodynamics. Hopefully you've, you've heard these. And if you study the course of thermodynamics, you introduce the laws of postulates. Postulates being assumptions. Okay? We have only one basic assumption, which is that the closed system is equally likely to be in any of its acceptable states. And so for us, these laws of thermodynamics will follow out of the fundamental assumption. So given that the fundamental assumption is true, then uh, the laws follow out of that, laws of thermodynamics. So there's a zeroth law, okay, of thermodynamics. Don't you love that? That means that someone named the first law before they figured out there was a more fundamental one. Okay, so well, I guess we'll call that one zero. Okay, so the zeroth law of thermodynamics is, and uh, what, uh, what I hope you'll like about this is now that we've talked a lot about the microscopics, the laws of thermodynamics sometimes will just seem very, very obvious. So. Here's the zeroth law. If a system A is in thermal equilibrium with system B, meaning they can trade energy, but not volume or particles, and if system B is also in thermal equilibrium with system C, meaning they can trade energy and particles, that means that system A is in thermal equilibrium with system C. Okay, transitive property. Okay, A is in equilibrium with B, and B is in equilibrium with C, then everything is in equilibrium with everything else. So, uh, what this means temperature-wise, of course, okay, is that if the temperature in system A equals the temperature in system B, and if TB equals TC, you have to have TC equals TA. The first law 
of thermodynamics is that heat is a form of energy. So heat, is, we, will, we will define more carefully in, in lectures to come. But heat we will define as energy that flows from one system to another. That's how we'll be able to define it. And this is how we keep track of the conservation of energy in statistical mechanics. Because, you know, we said, for example, earlier today, we'll put two systems in thermal contact that can trade energy. But we knew in the back of our minds that we needed to conserve total energy. So we never let the total energy deviate. I could just trade it back and forth. As energy traded across that barrier, that's what we mean by heat. Heat is the energy that gets traded across a barrier. So we conserved energy between the two systems, but not we didn't let uh, energy trade the rest of the world because we had drawn that box around the total system, right? The, the big box around the total system doesn't allow energy, particles, or anything else to, to be traded. The second law of thermodynamics is the law of increase of entropy. So sometimes this is stated as when an internal constraint on a system is removed. So for example, uh, we had our two-state system. What we did there was we had two states, uh, sorry, I mean our two state system, I mean our two separate thermodynamic systems. And when we brought them into thermal contact, we removed an internal constraint when we said that that barrier was now going to be able to exchange energy. Okay, do you see how I removed a constraint? I had said these two systems are separate and may not exchange energy. Now I put them together in thermal contact, I removed that constraint. Now they may exchange energy. When that happened, we saw that the entropy of the total system increased. And it had to, because there were now more total states available, because they could switch energy until they found the most entropic configuration they could find. So they did exactly the second law of thermodynamics. They maximized the total entropy of the system. So when an internal constraint is removed, the total entropy will either stay the same or increase. And I've just kind of written that this is this is not an exact statement, okay, but a way to think about this is that 10 to the 23 out of times out of 10 to the 23 plus 1, it will increase, which is to say most of the time the entropy is going to increase when you in remove an internal constraint, unless you just happen to be already in the most probable configuration. Okay, so if I prepare two separate systems and then bring them together and then let them exchange energy, probably the entropy is going to increase, unless someone cheated and before I was looking, they had already brought them into thermal contact and then separated them. Okay, that's the only case in which when I bring them together, okay, they'll already be at the most probable configuration and entropy will stay the same. Most of the time, entropy is going to increase. Notice that it can't decrease on its own. Okay, so it's not possible. Questions about that? Okay. There's a good joke about the second law of thermodynamics. Sometimes people joke that the second law of thermodynamics happens in their closet, but it also happened on Einstein's desk. Now, you know, sometimes when you poke your head at the professor's office, you see this kind of thing. You know, you just you you work long enough, and you gather lots of stacks of papers, and it all kind of becomes messy. Okay, so basically, um, entropy, meaning that there's a lot of uh, a lot of configurations available, okay, a lot of, of uh, you know, part of, part of entropy, okay, is that things tend towards disorder. So, anyway, there's my joke. <laughs> Third law of thermodynamics. I think you're laughing because the joke's over. <laughs> Third law of 
thermodynamics is that the entropy of a system approaches a constant value as the temperature approaches zero. Um, this one is almost too simple to be stated. So basically, when you define entropy as we did, which is as a logarithm of the number of accessible states, as I approach absolute zero, what do you expect to happen? Approach absolute zero, what happens to the multiplicity function? There much that can happen in absolute zero. Okay, not much can happen in absolute zero. That's that's the point here. So as I turn down the temperature and turn down the temperature, the number of accessible states decreases and decreases and decreases until at absolute zero, there's basically one state that's accessible. That's it. Multiplicity function has basically gone down to the lowest value. Okay. So basically, that, that's, that's this, this statement that the entropy approaches a constant value basically means it's approaching zero. Okay. What it will mean for the rest of thermodynamics is that most plots of thermodynamic variables will end up coming in flat as we plot, for example, the heat capacity as a function of temperature. The heat capacity, which we didn't define yet, but we will eventually define, will come in and come in and come in, and then it will kind of level out. Okay, so it'll end up approaching some definite value as temperature goes to zero. There they are. That's the summary of the laws of thermodynamics. Uh, zero's law, thermal equilibrium means the same temperature. First law, heat equals energy, therefore you should conserve it. Second law, entropy either increases or stays the same. Third law, the entropy approaches a definite constant at absolute zero. And most of the time, it's really going to approach uh, zero, as long as one is zero. <coughs> so here's what we looked at today. To recap, the fundamental assumption was that a closed system is equally likely to be in any accessible state. We introduced the terminology ensemble average, which is the same thing as the weighted average. And the ensemble in statistical mechanics is to take the system and create um, repeat the system for every possible accessible state. That's how you make the ensemble uh, in statistical mechanics. Two systems in thermal contact, we saw that the multiplicity then is the sum over the spin deviation of multiplicity on the left-hand side times the multiplicity on the right-hand side. And we saw that there's one main term in here that dominates the sum. Entropy we define as a logarithm of the multiplicity. Temperature we defined as the derivative of the energy with respect to the entropy, because this is the quantity that ends up being equal when two systems come into contact. And we also went over the laws of thermodynamics. Any questions? Uh, yes? When you talk about the entropy, the, the base of the logarithm is 10 or the exponential? Exponent. It's, it's the, the natural logarithm. Other questions? Yes? Um, on the homework set, there were three problems. Yes. That says one is due Wednesday. Does that mean we're not turning the other two? Or no. we had 2.4, 2.4. No, the, the entire homework set is due Wednesday. 
not just oh. problem 2.2. Sorry. Okay. I'm like, homework problem 2.2, which is due Wednesday. Okay. okay. Any other questions? All right. See ya next lecture.